Welcome to Forbes Podcasts. Hi, everyone. I'm Denise Ristari, and this is Mentoring Moments. On each show, I invite a woman to share her wow. You need to know these stories, also known as Mentoring Moments. We'll have a new episode on the first and third Tuesdays of each month, and Mentoring Moments is part of the Forbes Podcast Network, produced by Fractal Recording. I'm smiling because I'm sitting at the kitchen table in my apartment, joined by my friend Libby Moore, who also happened to be Oprah Winfrey's chief of staff for 11 years. In college, Libby's dream job was to write for Saturday Night Live. Well, that didn't exactly happen, but she did land some cool jobs that led her to a really cool job. When she was 34, she became Oprah's chief of staff and loved it so much that she kept on doing it for 11 years. But then she went on to become an entrepreneur, and she did something that I'm kind of a little jealous of, but happy she did it. She did the Libby Moore Gypsy Tour, 365 days with absolutely no plan except to follow her heart. Today, she's a speaker, adventurer, certified life coach, a connector, a board member, and a mentor to many. So Libby and I are sitting here. We're fueled by, oh, an espresso or two. So we're going to just jump right in. Nothing matters if you don't have a story, Libby. And I know you of all people know that because you've got some of the best stories ever. So let's just kick it off. Let's just start with a mentoring moment, a story that is a, wow, you have to know this or a, okay, you won't believe this or a, you need, you just absolutely have to hear this story. Mm -hmm. Give us a story in your life that is your mentoring moment. First of all, there are so many stories. It's hard. My head is spinning. It's like I need to lasso one and bring it down. I would say one that has stayed with me the longest, and it's not a big wow, but it changed my life, is within the first six months of working with Oprah as her chief of staff, executive assistant, personal assistant, I had something happen with someone within the company, let's just say. I'm going to speak in very vague terms. And if you were to look at the two of us on paper as far as the hierarchy, me and this other person, as her chief of staff, I certainly was above them, let's say, in the hierarchy of positioning. And I said we had a a disagreement about something, and I felt like that person had more power in the situation, was given more power in the situation. And I was having this big conversation with her, and she said, Libby, if you feel that that person has more power than you, they do. It's as simple as that. If you think that person has more power than you, they do. It doesn't matter where they are on the hierarchy. And that that just completely was a, oh my God, that's right. And I was giving away my power to that person. So in any, ever since that moment, it doesn't matter where someone is, I think if I, whether it's a partner or a family member or a friend or a coworker, that has always stuck with me. It's about, it's all, a, 
in your head. If you give away your power to someone, absolutely, they have it. You're the one in control. I agree. I think back to when I was 23 and my boss threw a stapler at my head. Ooh. And you know, I grew up really, I grew up in a small town outside of Pittsburgh. And now I had this high profile job in the hotel industry, mm-hmm. Washington, D.C., on Capitol Hill. But my boss was one of these guys who was really passive aggressive. And he would make you feel badly about yourself, kind of like you should be happy you have a job. Ugh. And also adding to mind being a college dropout when it wasn't cool to be a college dropout mm-hmm. as it is now, that always played in my head. Right. So the day he threw a stapler at my head was, it was a long story, but basically he was dating some girl in the company and the owner found out and he was, you know, he was upset with him and he blamed me for telling the owner, which I had nothing to do with it. But he threw a stapler at me and I took a walk. I was on Capitol Hill and I walked through the park and there was a homeless woman on a park bench and she smiled at me with this toothless grin. And I thought her life's better than mine. She doesn't work for this guy. And that was that moment where I thought there's something very wrong here. And when I looked at it now in hindsight, I didn't see it at that time. I did have the smarts enough to go back and quit. Yeah. And what I didn't understand was he was verbally abusive before he became physically abusive. Mm. And we shouldn't wait until that time. Mm-hmm. But it's because I gave him that power yeah. and I let him play with my head. And even to this day, I sometimes think back to that because it still goes on with me, right? right. Somebody that I will think it's like, oh my God, they're so-and-so and they're so-and-so. And I'm sure you've had plenty of those opportunities mm-hmm being Oprah's chief of staff, where you're around people who are very powerful. But it's just getting into your own head that they may have a job that is bigger. They may be doing something that appears to be bigger, but they're not any better than you, that you're you're equals on so many grounds. They may just have a different job. Right. Yeah. Now, how old were you when that happened? I was 34, 35. I took the job with Oprah when I was 34. And it was within that first year, so probably 34 or 35. And how did you get the job with Oprah? I'm going to make, try to make this short because it's only a very <laughs> it's a podcast, people. I was working as an executive, a, a second assistant to Jan Wenner, as an executive assistant to Jan Wenner at Rolling Stone and Magazine. And um, about three years into that job, because I had moved to New York, I wanted to be in comedy, blah, blah, blah. I got into this uh, line of being an executive assistant and can I interrupt for a second? You yes. wanted to be in comedy? I did. My dream was to write, be a writer for Saturday Night Live. So when I moved to New York at 25 years old, I only knew one other person who was one of my best friends from college who was a writer for Letterman, and that's the only person I knew. And so I just thought, this is it. I'm going to do it. I know I'm going to be a writer for Saturday Night Live. I, I've wanted to be in comedy my whole life. And in college, she would, we would both say, she would say, I'm going to write for Letterman. And I'd say, I'm going to write for Saturday Night Live and we'll get a loft in the city. Well, she ended up getting a job as a writer for Letterman for six years. And Jill Davis is her name. And then I came in, I thought, I'm definitely getting a job writing for Saturday Night Live. Well, it didn't happen that way. I ended up getting a job with Maury Povich as his personal assistant a month after I got to New York. I'm going to fast forward so I don't uh, stay in that too long. But basically, fast forward, I'm working as Jan Wenner's assistant. I'm three years in. I never really felt like a great assistant. I'm going to be vulnerable with you, Denise. Are you ready okay. for this? I'm ready for the it. The V-bomb. I'm, I'm bracing myself. Here comes I'm, holding the on. V-bomb. I'm holding on to my chair. <laughs> I never really felt like I was a good assistant. 
the administrative tasks of an assistant, answering the phone, I would forget messages, filing, I hated it. You know, I, to this day, I don't know how to do a PowerPoint. I've never done a presentation, but it's shocking how far I got. I realized later what my gifts were, and that is reading people's energy and supporting people and knowing being five steps ahead. So that, that all came together. But my point is, three years into the job with Jan, I thought, I need to get into comedy. I was in a small sketch comedy group at the time. I was taking improv and stand-up classes. I said this prayer, riding the subway to work one day. Okay, God, source, divine, universe, whatever you want to call it. I think it's the same thing. I'd been sending, sending writing submissions to the Rosie O'Donnell show. It, didn't, it wasn't happening. It had been 10 months. I was like, clearly you don't want me to have this job with Rosie. So whatever it is you want me to do, every atom, cell, and molecule, my body, mind, soul, and spirit's open to it. Show me what it is. Be really clear, and I'll do it. Amen. And I kind of released that intention, intention out to the universe. Within four to five weeks from putting that out there, this is to answer your question. Now I'm getting to the point of answering your question. I got this email from, through this group that I was in called New York Celebrity Assistants, NICA, New York Celebrity Assistants. And it was 100 assistants to high-profile people in New York in fashion, film, television, finance. And the email came in from one of the members, and it said, I was just contacted by an executive headhunter in Chicago. They are in search of chief of staff, executive assistant, to high-profile person in Chicago. And then it had this, it didn't say who the person was, but it had this laundry list of like 150 responsibilities, literally. And the first two said, coordinate private plane and pilots. Second was coordinate hair and makeup. And as soon as I read that second responsibility, I thought, holy shit, this is Oprah Winfrey. This job is for Oprah. And this is the only person that I would pick up and move my life for. And that's how the job came to me. And did you interview with Oprah? Was that a crazy process? Simple? It's interesting because looking back, it was the, one of the easiest jobs I've ever gotten, meaning that it flowed. When you're in the flow, everything just, it it's felt like one door would open, the next door would open. So uh, that came in on Friday the 13th, 2000, which is now my lucky day, Friday the 13th. I updated my resume that weekend. I faxed it to the headhunter on Monday. We, she called me immediately. We had about a 10-minute conversation. She said, you sound interesting. I'd like to talk to you tomorrow. Her name was Hel- Helen Fronteras. And um, she, we set up a call for the next day. We had an hour interview on the phone. That went really well. She said, can you talk to uh, do a conference call with the president of Harpo and director of HR on Friday? Yes. I did that call with them that Friday. And then that went really well, and they said, Oprah will be in New York next week. Can you meet her at the Four Seasons for drinks? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so a week later, I was meeting Tim Bennett, the president of Harpo, and Oprah at the Four Seasons for drinks. And did she hire you on the spot? I wouldn't say she hired me on the spot, but it was, can I tell you a little bit about that, I would, that moment? I would love to. Okay, yeah. so I got to the Four Seasons early, and I sat in the lobby, and I said this prayer And I basically said, okay, thank you for bringing me to this opportunity. Wow. I cannot believe I'm about to have an interview with Oprah. And, you know, thank you for flowing through me and help me to be 100% myself, calm, cool, confident, help me to be myself. And if I am meant for this job, then make it clear to her that I'm the one for the job and make it clear to me. Amen. And I just kind of, again, release that intention, that prayer. So I went in. And flow through me, flow through me, help me to be myself. And um, so I sat down, Tim came in, the president of Harpo, 
Oprah's on the line with President Clinton. She'll be right down. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. Me, Libby Moore, you know, academic probation in high school, barely got through college. I can't believe it. It was just like all this stuff in my head. And then um, she came in and the whole room just went quiet. Like, oh, my God, there's Oprah. It was Friday at 5. You know, the place was buzzing. She sat down in, in typical Oprah form, just her being so comfortable in her skin and with herself. She made me feel completely comfortable. We talked for about 40 minutes, the three of us. And at some point she said, so what's your plan? And I said, what do you mean? What's my plan? She said, you know, your plan for your life. And I said, well, honestly, um, like, you know, five weeks ago, I was sending writing submissions to the Rosie O'Donnell show. I didn't want to be an assistant anymore. And I've been trying to get that job for about 10 months as a writer. And once I, and then I was riding the subway to work and I said this prayer, like, okay, God, source, divine, clearly you don't want to have this job. Every atom and cell in my mom, by body, spirit's open to it. Show me what it is. It'd be clear. And amen. And then five weeks later, this comes along. And here I am sitting with you at the Four Seasons having a glass of Chardonnay. So if you leave this interview and you feel like she's the one for the job, I would love to take it because it matches my seven years of experience being an executive assistant with what I believe in passionately, which is what you're doing on your show, in the world, through your foundation. And if you leave this interview and you feel like, uh, you know, she's nice, but she's not the right one for the job, then to me... That just means that there's someone coming very soon for you that's going to be a better chief of staff, like a more appropriate person for you that fits that role better. And if this isn't what God has planned for me, I can't wait to see what's next. So at that point, she kind of looked at me and looked at Tim and said, well, I think we should bring you to Chicago and Tim, you know, like to meet her, the people, the team and da, da, da. And then it kind of went from there, a series of interviews and I got the job. And I thought, oh, I'll go and do it for a couple of years. And I stayed for 11 years. It was amazing. I, I love that story because I, it hits so many points. One is being true to yourself, right? Mm -hmm. That you went into that interview, and I think it's hard to do any interview, let alone with Oprah Winfrey, right. to be able to be yourself yes. and to not think, I need to act like a guy in this interview. I'm doing my fingers here, guy in quotes in an interview, and I need to be you know, that I can do the job, I've got it done, mm -hmm. and you were you, and talking about intention. And I think that sometimes comes off as a female thing to talk mm -hmm. about intention mm -hmm. more than men in a business setting. Mm -hmm. So, and I, and I think that's great that you were honest with you and right. with who you are. And have you always been that way? Have you always been that person who was able to find your intention and be honest with yourself? Good question. I feel like, I, I feel like, naturally, I kind of am that way. I'm an Aries, you know, we're the pioneers of the Zodiac. We're out there like, you know, discovering new lands. So there's a lot of confidence in that area, but also, you know, I am gay. I knew my whole life that I was gay since I was like eight or nine years old. So even though I had a lot of confidence, I felt like, oh, this is like, you know, this is not okay. So I, when you're gay and you know it at a young age, you soon realize like around fifth, sixth grade, oh, I have to keep this a secret, at least in, you know, I'm 49, 50. So uh, around 1976, it wasn't necessarily cool or accepted to be gay. So I knew as a kid I needed to suppress that, or I thought I did. That's, you know, that's an important distinction to make. I thought I had to suppress it, so I did. So I lived a big chunk of my life until I came out at 27. 
suppressing one of the biggest parts of me that I was born into. I, I just am, you know? So that was kind of wonky because I, even though I felt confident in, in some areas, I thought, oh, if people know who I am, then this is not going to be okay. I think I just got off track. What no, was... no, the, no, you're totally on track. You were talking about how your intention, if you always lived your life yeah. with knowing your intention. So, so you're totally on track. Okay, so thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Denise, for keeping me on track. Which is very difficult for everyone listening to us. When Libby and I get together, right. we go down many side roads, so we're trying to stay on a road <laughs> right. here. We should practically, right. we're practically right. holding hands right, right now. Like, okay, like, okay we we're going to stay on yeah. this road, two of us together. <laughs> this, is kind of, this is dangerous territory. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah, so uh, being myself. So, so coming out at 27 was huge for me. And then I got this job at 34. So I remember, you know, God, God bless my mom, who was incredibly supportive once I came out to my friends and family. But at one point she said, uh, before my interview with Oprah, you know, I think if she, if she asks if you're gay, I think you should just not, you know, I I don't think you should tell her you're gay. This was before my interview with Oprah. And I said, Mom, look, I totally understand why you're saying that. Because you want me to have this job. What mother wouldn't? I want this job. If, if I'm the right person for this job, I want, I want this job. But if Oprah isn't comfortable working with gay people, then I'm not the right person for her. And of course, you know, cut to, and my mom said, okay, I understand. And, and my mom, by the way, is wildly supportive of me. You know, she still, I'm 49. She like outs me left and right. She, you know, pe- the parents go to her in the community. Like my son just came out. Can I talk to you? So I want to make that clear. And of course, you know, when I did come out to Oprah, I was like, it's a non-issue. I mean, it was like five days in. It was like, she could care less. It's, she doesn't have any prejudice against anybody or hold anybody back from who they are. So I think also I will say about being yourself, I'm still working on it. Like I've said a hundred times in this interview, I'll be 50 in two months. I still work on being myself. And what's so amazing and what I've discovered in the past four years since I left when the show ended and I went, went on to do other things and then left the company, the more I'm myself, the more freaking miracles come to me. It, my, my life is becoming more and more amazing the more I am myself. Can you give me an example of one of those miracles? Yeah, I would just say, God, you know my whole, like, I don't know, there's so many miracles we've discussed. I would just say that going into a meeting with whether it's the CEO of a massive international corporation or meeting with anyone, walking into a party where I don't know anyone, you know, I haven't Googled anyone in four years, as you know, so I don't know who anyone is. I just think I'm going to go in and be myself or, you know, all these meetings that I have with people, even how you and I met, you know, it's just, I, I knew nothing about you. I just decided I'm not Googling people. I'm meeting people heart to heart, energy to energy. And so we went into that lunch and here we are doing an interview for Forbes.com. Hello. I mean, that wasn't planned. I wasn't trying to get something, you know, it was just, that's the, I would say that's the miracle of life just by showing up and being yourself. I agree. And we've talked about this, that meeting without having that intention of, I want to get something out of this meeting. All I knew about you was our friend Dan Benna had introduced Mm -hmm. us and he went on and raved and raved how a one hour meeting turned into like a three hour breakfast between the two of you. And he was like, the two of you have to meet each other. (laughs) 
And so all I knew is that you had been Oprah's chief of staff Mm -hmm. for 11 years. I, and I saw that you were doing the Libby Moore, you were doing the, the Libby Moore Gypsy Tour. tour right. Uh-huh. And so I was interested in that, but I knew nothing else about yeah. you other yeah. than that. And it was great because when we met, it, it, it wasn't that I need to ask you this, I need to find out that, I need to take you down this road. Yeah. And being in sales all my life, that's always been you enter a room knowing what you want to get out of it. Mm-hmm. Exactly as you're saying, I've learned that the best surprises and the best things come out of life, sometimes when you don't have that laser focus of what you want to get out of it, because what the person, and maybe you get nothing out of it in mm-hmm. that moment, mm-hmm. a takeaway, mm-hmm. right. but you learn so much. And that yes. when we first met the learnings, and I think it was a dual mentoring mm-hmm. moments of mm-hmm. you sharing your stories and me sharing my stories without any real, when I leave here, I have to have a deal signed or I have to walk away with. So I envy you and, and I'm trying to do more and more of it that you've had these four years of just being able to be on the Libby Moore. Well, you had a year of the Libby Moore Gypsy yes, Tour, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So, what did you do for that year of the Libby Moore Gypsy Tour? So, one, the only reason I left the, the company was because I was just burnt. I mean, I love Oprah. I love that job. I love what I learned there. I mean, my mind was just stretched and. You know, it's hard, as we've talked about before, it's hard to put it all in short little sentences because, oh my God, it was just extraordinary. The problem is that I didn't, I didn't know how to balance my life. So I'd been through three relationships since I was in that job. You know, as, as extraordinary as everything was professionally, my personal life was really suffering and I was exhausted. I mean, I was just exhausted. I wasn't taking care of myself. So I realized that I needed to, to move on. There was something in my gut, in my soul, in my spirit saying, you need to go out. You need to take a a time to reconnect with yourself and then take all of this experience and share it in another form. So it was really a massive leap of faith, leap of faith, because I did not have a plan, a map, nothing. I just thought, well, I'm going to listen to my gut, my intuition. And as much as I hate leaving this, this role and this person and this company and everything that this this company is doing in the world, I felt like I have to do it. And so I did the Libby Moore. I left. I called it the Libby Moore Gypsy Tour just because it rhymes and I thought it sounded fun. And for 365 days, I followed my heart. And that meant anything that my heart said, hell yes, I did it. And anything that my head was like, I don't know, I'm not sure. My heart's like, eh, I didn't do it. It was that simple. And that took me to my partner and I at the time went to on safari in South Africa. We went to Oprah's Leadership Academy, the first graduating class of her Leadership Academy, which was incredible. I went to see a faith healer, John of God in Brazil, for 10 days by myself. I went back to Maryland and Delaware and reconnected with my family and brother and sisters for six weeks. I spent time with my other sister in Portland, Oregon, and her kids for chunks of time because I never really got to see them grow up, you know, spend time with them. I, my partner and I at the time rented a cottage on a lake in Seattle. We knew two people there. That's it. I had never been to Seattle. We lived in this teeny, 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 tiny, tiny, tiny little cottage. And I would like sleep until my body was ready to wake up and um, go to bed when my body was tired and do it. did a lot of meditation, prayer, and just reconnecting with myself. And then at the end, and then when that year was up, I moved, we moved back to LA and I thought, because, you know, well, we know some people there in connection, so I'll just see what happens. But at the end of that Libby Moore Gypsy tour, people say, well, what are you going to do now? And I say, 
I'm going to do exactly what I've done for the past year. And they'd say, what is that? And I'd say, just meet people, coffee, lunch, dinner, breakfast, and just meet people heart to heart, energy to energy, have conversations, just connect with people. And they said, well, how are you going to make money? And I would say, I have no idea, but because I love this so much, I know that the money will come. And that's exactly what has happened. Now I'm moving into the fifth year of doing that. And what are you doing now? So I'm a private coach. I do consulting, advising. I'm advising some startups. I do a lot of mentoring. And there's this whole other silo of uh, open to creative possibilities. So I believe, based on how I've lived my life, that my mind and ego can line things up or say, hey, I want to do this, like right for Saturday Night Live. But yet there's uh, something bigger, whether you want to call it, again, God, source, divine, universe, higher intelligence. It's all the same thing. Atom cells, molecules, energy. Let's call it energy. That this big energy has plans that are even better than we can dream for ourselves. And so when I, when I tap into that, I feel like that's when the magic happens. So there's this whole other silo where I'm open to creative collaborations with people. Um, and I love taking all the experience and knowledge that I've gained over the past 30 years to share with um, different creative possibilities, let's say. But is it hard, though, to reinvent yourself? I and mean, after being with Oprah, when I was at USA Today... And I became, my name was no longer Denise Ristari. It was Denise with USA Today. And then I left USA Today and I became Denise Ristari. And that's a totally different brand than Denise with USA Today. And it was, it was a different territory for me. And reinventing myself, I didn't have a product that physical product that people wanted when I was at USA Today, whether it was access to the editorial department at USA Today or doing something to make them a better company. I had something, so they thought I had something that they wanted. And then you take that brand away, and it was really difficult to get people to respond to me at first. But I think part of that was because I didn't think I had what they wanted, right? Because I had become... Denise with USA Today. Mm -hmm. And as burnt out as I was, and it was a great, it was a great run. I was there for 16 years and I loved wow. it. And I think we were, I hope that USA Today feels the same way as I do. I'm sure they do. That we were mutually beneficial for each other. But, and it was great. But I was burnt. I was, it was time to move on. But still, it was scary. Yeah. So were you scared at all in any of this? Or, and maybe you're, I think you had more foresight or insight than I did at that point. And I was 47 when I left. I also have a daughter. She was only seven years old. So I had that major responsibility. I was divorced and I was a single parent, um, no alimony. So I had a lot of responsibility. And so I, I don't know. Sometimes I look back and think, is that, was that scaring me some? Especially when, and this is when you were talking earlier about people getting into your head and allowing them to be more powerful than you. A guy came up to me one day and said, I can't believe you left your job at USA Today. You're a single mom. How irresponsible are you? Ooh. That lived with me for a really long time mm. because I thought, was I, you know, was I doing something for me by leaving? Was, am I hurting my daughter by leaving? And I'm a very responsible person. Mm -hmm. And that played in my head for the longest time. Whenever something didn't go right, in my new with being an entrepreneur, I would sometimes think, see, I shouldn't have left. I should have stayed in corporate America. That's where I belong. I shouldn't have done this. So my question, that's a long way of getting to it for you is, 
when you reinvented yourself, was that hard now being Libby Moore versus Libby Moore, Oprah's chief of staff? Hmm. I have to go back for a second to that guy that made that comment to you. He was projecting all his crap onto you. Exactly. I didn't realize at the time because I was in a, I was in a mode of fear kind of, of like, worse. did I make the right decision? That was going yes. on in my head, I yeah. think. Because I wasn't sure I made the right decision deep right. down. Yeah. So let's say his life experience was his mother or father left the job and then the family kind of fell apart, right. whatever. And then he says, are you kidding me? Because that's based on his life experience. Right. So, um, and look where you are now. So Sitting across from you, I couldn't be any happier <laughs> as we're holding hands right <laughs> <Yeah>, now. <laughs> um, so yeah, was there fear around that? Definitely. No, when I was in the job, so... I was in the job for 11 years. I, I started at 34. I left at 45. I had no plan, as I, I said. And I remember when I was in the job and kind of coaching people organically, not aware that I was doing it, but saying, look, when you get wrapped up in your Oprah's, you know, you are Oprah's executive producer or Oprah's maintenance team or Oprah's, you know, uh, editor, whatever your role was within that Oprah universe then you've lost yourself. So I remember having conversations with people about like losing yourself in the job. And I would see a lot of people come in and they're like this really amazing person. And then they would just lose their shit over power. Like all of a sudden it's just power. That's a whole nother conversation. And that's not even there. It's anywhere, anywhere that has a big name like USA Today or, you know, my God, we're in New York City, like all the companies. I see it in my own, my, my parents' business. They're they're small town business. You know what I mean? In Maryland, it's like people just get crazy with power. But um, my point is once I left the job, I realized, oh my God, I was caught up in it too. I didn't think I was caught up in the title of it at all. I mean, I, I never, I, all my people, all my friends and family that knew me like prior to getting that job, even when I was in the job, they're like, you know what? You are exactly the same. You're no different. And then when I came out, I was the same person. But in my head, I thought, who am I without this job? Because I'd spent over a decade in it. Who am I if I'm not Oprah's chief of staff? And I really had to work through that. You know, and I thought, like you said, it's, it's all about your thoughts and thinking. That is the key. I when I went through that period of who am I if I'm not Oprah's chief of staff, then I would enter a room, a party, a lunch, whatever, feeling differently. My energy would be different than when I'm in the place of I'm Libby Moore. I'm the same person I was before I went in that job with all this extra experience. So I had to figure that out on my own. And if you were telling this, and you are telling this hopefully yeah. to 20-somethings, to uh-huh. and saying what do you, what would you have told yourself then knowing what you know now, yeah. if you were 20, yeah. to be able to help you navigate through that experience of losing yourself? Well, one thing I like, I find myself, this pops into my head every time I get a question like this. Try your best to be yourself with all people in all situations at all times. If you do, do that on a daily basis, then you just are yourself. You've exercised that muscle so that when you're, if you can do that now at 20, 21, 22, if you're aware of that every day, you get into a situation where, where it's you're meeting some partner, someone set you up on a date and you're like, oh, that might be the one. And you try to, you know, all of a sudden you lose yourself and like, oh, what are you going to order? Yeah, I'll have that too. Oh, you want a gin and tonic? That's what I'll have too, even though you want a Chardonnay. Because I'm, hello, speaking from experience, I've done that. 
it's like if you can exercise in those little moments, what do I want? Who, who, who am I? What do I really want? That exercises and strength strengthens that muscle of simply being yourself. And when you are yourself, you feel more comfortable in your body and your skin and your spirit. And you go out in the world and people feel that energy from you and want to be around that energy. And that energy is inspiring. So that's, that's what I would say. Just keep working on being yourself. And, and that is a great one because I am so, I used to be even more so and guilty of doing that and thinking that I was just being quote unquote easy. You yes. know, like it doesn't matter. Uh, this is not my last meal. Hopefully I'm going to have dinner again tomorrow. <laughs> and I just really don't want to decide, but it is exercising that muscle in the smallest ways mm-hmm. of saying, you know, today I want white tulips instead mm-hmm. of red. Mm-hmm. Some things don't matter that much. So if my, you know, if my husband wanted red, do I, how badly do I want white, right? Do I really want to fight over white for red? Maybe, maybe I don't. But knowing that you can, that right. you feel confident enough in yourself. And I think that's really great that it's that muscle that you've got to keep exercising. So we don't think it's just for the big things. It's, it really starts out on the small things that are important to us to Absolutely. really look at them. As a matter of fact, if we don't, if we just start with the small things, the daily basis, then when the big things come along, you're like, boom, right. you know exactly what to do. So if you look at that, though, and look back to you knew you were gay when you were eight mm-hmm. and you came out when you were 27. Yeah. How did that play? What impact did that have on your life for those 20, almost 20 years mm. of keeping a secret? Yeah. Great question. Number one, it was in one way, it was detrimental, I mean, clearly detrimental. But at a certain point in high school, by sixth grade, I was like, oh, I'm gay, but it was like, I wouldn't even allow that thought to enter my head. I grew up in a very small town in Maryland on the Eastern shore of Maryland, very like traditional, you know, a little pretty conservative. And I didn't know anyone that was gay. And so I, by suppressing that secret, I, I felt like, yeah, I have this big secret. And I, and so I became the best friend to everyone because I think deep in my, I know deep in my subconscious, I thought if people know I'm gay, they'll be, they won't like me. They'll be ew, grossed out, whatever. So I have to be the best friend to everyone in order to make sure I'm okay in life. Right. And then I kind of was like, Oh my God, I just people pleaser big time to everybody and everything. What do you want to do? Okay. So that whole thing, I got to college when you should really be dating your first boyfriend, you know, I was like, Oh God, I have a crush on my friend, you know? And I ended up drinking a ton of alcohol, eating a ton of food to numb myself, to numb the feelings. And I ended up gaining a lot of weight. I weighed 205 pounds. I was a size 20. My mom used to take me to the store in the Salisbury mall called the forgotten woman. I mean, what a horrible name for a store, right? Um, size 18 and up. So anyway, I just buried myself and, and I was like, Hey, the life of the party. And I had all these friends, but I was super, super sad inside so much so that, I mean, I'll be, I'll be honest. It's like, it's not something I share a lot, but I tried to end my life in a drunk driving accident when I was 20. Cause I, I just thought how I didn't go out that night thinking I'm going to end my life, but that's what it ended up resulting in. I just thought, how can I live my life and really love the person that I want to love and have everybody still like me or love me? So I ended up running my car into a tree and totaling the car and I survived. And that was when I was about 20, 21, I think. And then I ended up coming out, you know, at 27. So, so one, 
It's so detrimental. I wouldn't even be sitting here right now talking to you. That's how detrimental it is by living a lie. And then on the other hand, I have a choice to see how a perspective of how I look at that. And I feel that that experience helped make me a deeply compassionate person. So when people are in pain, I can feel that and I can um, be there to support them through that in some ways because I understand what that pain feels like. And I also think it created, it helped me to be a deep listener, a deep, deep listener. You tell me what's going on with you. How are you feeling today? How can I help you? So that's kind of been ingrained in me since I was about eight. And now when you meet with people, I'm sure you meet with women, men who Mm -hmm. haven't come out, who Mm -hmm. are hiding. Mm -hmm. I don't want to say advice that you give them, but what, what is it that you can, what is it you do for them Mm -hmm. to help them? I, one, it it goes back to be yourself with all people, you know, at all times, in all situations. Now that one is a hard one. If you're not out, that's, that's a hard thing to do. I will say that once I came out at 27, my whole life changed. Not only did the weight just melt off of me over a period of time, I never have dieted since, you know, and I'm like average weight. It allowed me to be myself. So And that's when my career really started taking off. So I came out while I was working at the Mari Povich show. I think Mari was one of the first people I told. He was fantastic and supportive. And he did a show called Coming Out Strong. So I went in his office and I locked the door and I watched the in-studio feed. And after that, I thought, okay, I'm gay. I've known it my whole life. And I ended up telling one of my best friends that weekend. And from there, she embraced me and was so amazing. My same friend that worked at Letterman, Jill Davis, um, she was so supportive of me. And then so her being supportive and Mari being supportive was like, oh, wow, people aren't going to like shun me. This is amazing. And my whole, my family was supportive, friends. My whole life shifted because my energy shifted. I wasn't hiding this big secret anymore, you know? So then I could go and be myself with people. And everything from there, it was like boom, 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 Rolling Stone, Oprah, you know, Gypsy Tour and what I'm doing now. So, and I, and I found that the more I am now just being myself, even at, on the edge of 50 years old, on the verge of 50, it's amazing. It is amazing. So I feel that I help people see, oh, you mean it doesn't have to be bad. It's actually a really good thing when you come out, especially now in 2016, my God. And, and may I also say, when I say coming out, it's not even just about being gay, like hiding in the closet. There's so many things to come out about, you know, whatever you find is your big secret that you're hiding from people. There's so many like quote unquote coming outs that we have that if we can just have the courage, find the courage to tell one friend, coworker, something about whatever our thing is, you will find that the world just rises up to meet you and support you through that. And I think talking about it really helps when I was... Um, I guess I was in my 30s. I was in my 30s, and I spent seven years of infertility treatment. Mm-hmm. And I looked at being having issues getting pregnant as something being wrong with me, that I was damaged. And my therapist at the time said, why can't you look at this like it's a medical condition? Because that's what it is. It's If you had cancer, you would be telling people, right? You'd be saying, you know, I have breast cancer because you feel that you'd be supported. Mm-hmm. But because you're undergoing infertility treatment, you kind of feel like there's something wrong with you, especially as you're seeing all your friends who are pregnant, just had children. It's like, why not you? There must be something wrong with you. So... I quit doing infertility treatment and decided that adoption was a wonderful 
way for me to have my family, not even an option, because people will sometimes ask me, you know, is it, is it better or worse adopting? And it's neither better or worse. Mm. It's different. It's mm-hmm. just different, but that doesn't make it better or worse. Now, having my daughter, I can say it's much better because I can't imagine my life without my daughter. I'm so connected to her that I just can't imagine what that would have been like. But I started telling people that I wanted to adopt. And that's when the doors opened up for me to have my daughter. Mm. Had I not done that, and it wasn't because I was spreading the word. I think it was because I allowed the universe mm-hmm. to help me. That I, My energy was at a totally different level being able to say, I want to adopt a child. If you know of anyone who has a child that needs to find a different family, that they cannot raise that child, please let me know. And I would tell almost everybody in the world, I'm sure some people mm-hmm. looked at me like, okay, what is wrong with that woman? It's like, hi, I'm Denise, and I'm, right. I'm looking to adopt a child. Uh-huh. But in all seriousness, it opened up, I really do think it opened up my world. So I think what you're saying and saying that, let's talk about it yeah. and bring it and talk. People want to know. So I want you to do, please, please, yes. please, another mentoring moment. Mm. Is there anything we haven't covered that you want to cover, that's something that you're thinking, you know, that's a story I want to tell, but we didn't get down that road. God, there's so many. I'm going to do a couple really quickly. One, um, and it comes, it doesn't have to be some big, you know, oh my God, it can be a little passing moment. Like I remember once Oprah and I were walking, um, we were at her school in South Africa and we were walking from her home to the campus. And, and I, taking that opportunity early in the morning, was trying to squeeze in as many questions as I could get in. And at one point she said, you know, Libby, sometimes the walk just needs to be the walk. And I just was like, boom, you know, you know what? You're right. And that metaphor of sometimes the walk just needs to be the walk back to us. It's not about every lunch, dinner, coffee you have has to be like, what can I get from this person? I was like trying to get information from her so I could feed it back to the States and get, move things along. You know, sometimes it's about just like being in the moment, even if it's not saying anything, connecting energy to energy. Sometimes that is more powerful and more needed than just trying to scrap through to get some information from someone. Another thing that pops up is uh, when I first started working with her, she, you know, had her board, of course, for the foundation. And I said, do you mind if I sit in? Because I feel that it would be really important for me to understand what's going on with the foundation and to, to, to bring your whole life together and make sure it's synchronized. And of course, and she said, of course. So I, so I start, started sitting in on the meetings and I'm not a board member. I wasn't a board member of her foundation, but I was sitting in and I had my own thoughts and feelings. So one time I said to her, after the meeting, uh, I said, you know, sometimes I have some strong feelings about what you all are discussing, but should I, I'm not a board member. So, you know, I was just like, well, I'm just J U S T, which that's a whole nother conversation. I'm just this, I don't, you know, you probably, do you want to know? And she goes, she said, Libby, you have a voice speak up in the meeting, outside of the meeting. Doesn't matter to me. Whenever it feels comfortable to you, you have a voice, use it. That in itself, I think, oh my God, that was huge for me. I hear her in the back of my mind when I'm in a situation and I, where I want to say something, but I'm not really sure if it's, a, you know, and I hear, you've got a voice, use it. So I think that's really important. In particular, to women who, there's so many boards that don't have women on them. That's a whole other conversation. That was a big one for me. 
And I would also have to say it's not even sometimes a direct thing that's happening, but it's something you're observing, meaning mentoring as being a human being on earth and you're observing things. This was even before I started working with her in the 95 maybe. And I, because I heard once I did start working with her, we, she would reference this time. And I feel that's very important. And so she was, all the talk shows, there were so many talk show in the talk shows in the nineties, like 91, 92, 93, Sally, Jesse, you know, Oprah, Mari, I mean, on and on and on so many. And around 93, four, five, I think it started getting really kind of cheesy and exploitive talk shows were. So everybody did it because the ratings seemed to surge and everyone went there for the ratings. And I think after one year of doing that, I'm not sure about the exact timeline, but that summer hiatus, she brought her team of producers and said, we're not doing this. This is not why I decided to have a talk show. I'm not, and, and this is stuff she's talked about publicly. It's not like I'm revealing anything. Uh, private. And she decided... And that would be okay. And they, yeah, yeah, that will not be happening. Um, but she said, we're going to do... We're totally taking a different term. We understand all the other talk shows are doing this. We are getting back to the basis. Why are we doing this? We want good programming. We want to do Change Your Life televisions. I, I'm paraphrasing. Change your, change your Life television. How can we help people live better lives? And in the beginning, once they started doing that, I would imagine the ratings took a hit and didn't do so well because people were looking at, but slowly people started migrating back to Oprah because you know what? No one wants to watch and, and, and watch crap and feel bad about themselves when they turn off the TV. They started watching her and would feel good about themselves and feel inspired and energized. And that took her to the number one slot for the rest of her time. So having the courage, talk about courage, to whether it's to take it on an individual level, to be yourself. When she had the courage to say, look, this is what my show's going to be, and and that's it. Because she brought that in alignment with who she is, and it surged her way, way above anybody else. So that's a great business model, too. I see it all the time now with companies that, oh, they're going after, quote-unquote, the rating or the numbers. And the truth is, if they just got back to the basics of why they started in the beginning, it would be amazing, you know? So much of what you're saying or I'm hearing is it's being true to yourself Mm -hmm. and really finding that courage, Mm -hmm. which is hard. It's Mm -hmm. hard. And I can, after knowing you, and we haven't known each other that long, but after knowing you, I could see why Oprah would want you to be her chief of staff. And we could talk forever as we sometimes do. Mm-hmm. We're going to wrap it up in a second, yeah. but I do want to end with, first of all, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your stories. It thank means, you. I, I think it means, so, it means so much to me, and I'm so grateful that you're in my life. Thank and you. And the story that I want to end with, though, is a few weeks ago, I introduced you to my husband, mm-hmm. and we came home, and later that night, he said, if you could go to dinner parties and everyone would be like Libby, that's a great reason to get out of the house. The problem is that it's a rare occasion to meet someone like Libby. Mm, thank you. And this time in particular, I agree with my husband a hundred percent. Thank you, Lewis. <laughs> oh my God. Thank, thank you. you. I thank really mean you. that. Libby has so many mentoring moments to share. Like she has a great story about a messenger, a guy named Billy, who just appeared in her life and became a mentor, someone she never expected. You'll find a link to that story and more in my show notes on Forbes.com slash podcast. 
Thanks for listening. I'd love to hear your thoughts about the show, so please review and rate. And if you like the show, which I hope you do, please tell a friend and subscribe. You just enjoyed a Forbes podcast. To learn more about our other shows, visit Forbes.com slash podcasts. Thank you.